as we come to the close of the first half of our season. Here's an episode that we've been champing at the bit to get to. A going deep episode, getting down to the nitty and gritty about digital privacy and responsibility, right here on Radio Drama Revival. Hello, and welcome to Radio Drama Revival, the podcast that showcases the diversity and vitality of modern audio fiction. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez-Collins. Today, experience a special episode structure called Going Deep, where we interview a creator in the fiction podcast space about a certain topic they have a significant breadth and depth of experience with. This time, we're in conversation with Serena Rahal, co-creator of the fiction podcast Signed Venus. Serena is a Palestinian storyteller, proficient in writing and acting, with a master's degree in gender studies and feminist research. Threads of this can be found all across her work, including the time and energy she puts into her online communities. She has, like many of us, spent a long time in, out, and around fandom for the media she enjoys, and has written several critical threads on digital privacy, fandom culture, and social justice awareness. She's brilliant, and I've learned a lot from her. Podcasting is a digitally distributed art form, and it's crucially important to think about your safety, your role, and your public position in online communities. We'll talk about self-care practices for being online TM, art and its relationship to politics, and everyone's favorite, parasocial relationships. Before we continue, the Radio Drama Revival team wants to indicate our unwavering support for the colonized and imprisoned people of Palestine. You can learn more about the reality of what has been and is currently happening in Palestine at decolonizepalestine.com. Serena and the RDR team would like you to consider donating to the London Community United Against Hate campaign, a crowdfund launched after a Muslim family was targeted and killed in a hate crime in London, Ontario. The funds are being donated on behalf of the deceased to long-term projects in the community. You can donate today, June 30th, at www.launchgood.com slash campaign slash London Community United Against Hate separated by underscores, number sign, exclamation point. The link is in the episode description. Please be aware that the following conversation broadly discusses racism, erasure, and abuse, and specifically discusses topics such as the presentation of abuse and harassment, the effects of Palestine's colonization, and forced outing of queerness and mental health statuses. Thank you for coming on to uh, Radio Drama Revival, Serena, and putting up with my wonderful computer. Um, it's definitely zero problems there whatsoever. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're really excited to talk to you about um, about digital privacy and digital responsibility in particular as it pertains to artists and podcast creators. Fabulous. Um, so I'm going to sort of start with talking a little bit about you so that we can all understand where you're coming from. Um, so you're the cre co-creator of the fiction podcast Signed Venus, and you've done a bunch of work on social media spaces about the intersection of uh, digital and, and social concerns, which I suspect comes from your graduate studies in gender studies and uh, feminist research. So um, tell us a little about how you fit your research together with your storytelling online. 
um, in particular, how do those two things intersect for you? Well, I think that I would say that the sort of research work that I did and the studies that I did when I was in the gender studies program are kind of informed by my own background as a Palestinian who grew up in the diaspora. Um, and I would say that uh, my work on Sign Venus is kind of informed by that those same kinds of experiences where um, my... My research paper that I did when I was in my master's program was looking at how Palestinian women writers blur the lines between reality and fiction in their poetry. Um, <laughs> I love that. I still, I still love that. It's so good. <laughs> it's something that I've always just kind of been really fascinated by. Um, and that's coming from my background as a Palestinian person, where it's like the kind of rhetoric that you hear growing up is like, well, Palestine's not a real place and there's no such thing as the Palestinian people. When you have that specific experience of not just like, it's not just a lack of representation, but also like a very overt form of erasure. Um, I guess it kind of, and I've heard this from a lot of other Palestinians as well, but it does cause a lot of people to have like an interesting grip on reality, myself included. Um, and so I guess growing up, I just kind of was asking myself questions about like, okay, so if I'm someone who supposedly doesn't exist and fiction is supposedly not real, I know I do exist. Um, I think that I have <laughs> some evidence that would suggest that that is true. And so I started to wonder how much of fiction is really not so fiction after all. Um, and that was kind of the question that I took with me when I went into my research. I was looking at how uh, erasure informs those kinds of experiences. And while sign Venus isn't exactly the same in that um, it's not so much a meditation on erasure specifically, but it is kind of about narrative building, um, what gets included in certain narratives and what gets excluded from it. Um, so... Sign Venus is a show about, um, it takes place in a fictional country called Conclair. Um, and in Conclair, there isn't, there's like, it's made up of lots of different towns, but you don't see people traveling within Conclair from town to town. So the information that the people of each town have about one another is quite limited. Um, in universe, um, Sign Venus is the name of a series of journals written by an anonymous writer who decides to travel to these different towns and write about what they see there and send their journal entries back to their hometown of Coast Venus. Um, the protagonist of the show is Hayden, who's a big fan of Sign Venus, um, and decides to kind of follow the writer around to different locations described in the series, trying to learn more about them as a person and to eventually catch up with them um, and uncover their identity. And what they're finding as they're going on this journey is that things aren't necessarily as straightforward as the writer had portrayed them to be. So um, you can kind of see the connections there between that concept, this idea of narrative building and only having one person that you can depend on um, to understand something 
when that person isn't necessarily representative of the places that they're talking about. Um, <laughs> <laughs> what a surprise. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. So and I feel like that's a lot of that's a lot of the kinds of stuff that I was interested in when I was doing my work in gender studies, just this idea of, OK, who gets to control narratives? Um, what narratives do we consider to be true? Um, and I think that's a concept that comes up in feminism a lot, where it's this idea of like women's experiences and the experiences of other marginalized people have historically been undermined in favor of like a rational masculine perspective that can see from the outside what the truth is. Um, <laughs> so it's a lot of that. <laughs> I mean, that's brilliant, right? Um, you know, uh, last 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 week, I I was a curator and a guest editor over at the Bellow Collective for a um, uh, for a newsletter that was themed around this concept of the blending of fiction and nonfiction um, in in audio in particular, right? Um, and uh, first, it's a lot like that that thing where you start seeing where you like learn about one thing and then you start seeing it everywhere like the Volkswagen <laughs> bug. Yeah, that's that's me with this topic because um, this conversation is the second time that that's happened since it was published. Uh-huh. <laughs> it's an interesting topic. It's so fascinating. Um, it's something that I'm so interested in and I love to learn about and I love seeing it portrayed in fiction. One of our writers um, in our in our newsletter, um, Rashika Rao, she was also the submissions editor for RDR, um, wrote a piece about like what it means to be experimental. And one of the things that, that she discusses in that piece is the ethics of when to blend those things. Um, and in particular brings up, um, have you heard of George's podcast where he does that uh, in order to um, tell a story about Grenfell Tower? Uh, it's a beautiful, heart-wrenching piece, but it... This section on ethics, right, made me uh, your conversation about why um, Palestinian artists and, and writers live in this liminal space, I guess. Um, right. Why this is something that that they write with, like in mind, uh, just made me think of that and, and why we might from from very like white uh, from very white perspectives, be like, oh, don't do that. It's unethical, right? It's like, wait, those are their stories. <laughs> you don't get to stop. <laughs> yeah. And I think, like, it's really, and yeah, there's definitely ethical questions around it, for sure. Um, but yeah, I think depending on the context, it's just such a fascinating mm-hmm. way to write. No, absolutely, yeah. right? Especially if it is is meaningful to, like, the the people who are doing it. I know one Um, review that we got of Sign Venus. um, It was overall a really positive review, but there was one sentence toward the end, and this was the person's only criticism, apparently. But they said that because we blend (laughs) the names of real places with our fictional locations, like California is talked about while also talking about like Arabella, which isn't a real place. Fun fact about Arabella, though... um, my grandmother and my grandparents in Jordan lived in a city called Irbid, and its colonial name from when Britain had occupied Jordan was Arabella. 
Wow. Yeah. So, yeah. but anyway. Yeah. Um, yeah. But anyway, yeah, so wow. they had said that because we're blending those, it makes it confusing to tell which places are real and which ones aren't. And I remember Reese and I reading that and being yes. like, that is such a compliment. <laughs> yeah. No, that's great. That means you nailed it. It was so funny. <laughs> yeah, you nailed it. If that person is listening right now, like, well, that's the point. You got it. <laughs> um, brain. Yeah, so if, if we were to move on to like some of the, the stuff that, that you have done online, one of the, these things that you have talked about is this concept of um, privacy is not the same as secrecy. And you're specifically referring to disclosing trauma and background in, in relationships, whether they be online or offline. Um, and of course, there's a growing conversation in particular around queer and mentally ill artists having to disclose that they're queer or mentally ill in order to write stories about their lives. Um. <laughs> yep. Uh, um, so how how would you suggest um, artists deal with these concepts and how to figure out what parts of them they, what parts of them they should or can um, or consider to reveal publicly and which ones are, are not for that? space yeah um i think a lot of times people kind of conflate this idea of authenticity with disclosure so i mean i think what you're talking about is slightly different just in the sense of like when people demand that someone disclose that they're mentally ill for example it's like there's a sort of conversation around like okay if you aren't part of x demographic then you don't have the right to write stories about that experience um which i think comes from a place that is well-meaning but mm-hmm. ultimately ends up being really harmful um yep. and with things like mental illness which like the disclosure of those things can actually cause you harm it can put you in harm's way um i think that uh it's really important to understand that like sometimes people have safety reasons for not wanting to disclose certain information um and when we're talking about trauma specifically like i feel like that one is such an important one just because like um Abuse does present a little bit differently online than how we typically talk about abuse presenting online. Like, it's not just, oh, I shouldn't post my address on the Internet because then someone might come to my house. Like, yeah, don't post your address on the Internet. Um, (laughs) But most people probably aren't going to come to your house. Like, generally speaking, that's just not a really super duper common thing that would happen. But what is common is that abusers might read your profile and find out that you have a certain mental illness or a certain trauma, infer from that all kinds of things about you, and then use it to kind of form an abusive relationship. So, for example, um, a lot of trauma can cause people to have difficulty saying no. 
And if you're in a mm -hmm. space of not just like an online space where you're friends with someone who might take advantage of that, although that's real and does happen. But I think particularly when we're looking at people doing professional work remotely, like we often are in audio drama, um, it becomes really dangerous because it's like there's people out there who want to take advantage of your labor as well. Absolutely. Oh, but going back to your initial question about privacy and secrecy. Um, mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that where I was trying to come from with that particular distinction is going back to this idea of being authentic. Like a lot of people think like, oh, you're not really close with someone unless they know your deepest, darkest secrets. But that really isn't true. Like there's going to be things in your life that you don't want to tell anybody and you're valid for that. Um, and also like there's going to be people in your life who you do disclose a lot to who you're going to realize that you don't actually care for that much. <laughs> um, and so it's just, it's not a very good metric for for evaluating closeness. And it's also not a good metric for evaluating authenticity. So when you use the word authenticity, let's actually talk a little bit about that. Because um, I think that it is really interesting. This, what is... What are the, these concepts of authenticity online that are things that can lead to abuse or harassment? I think that this comes like I think this comes up a lot in relationships where people want to feel like trusted or to believe in each other's honesty and things like this. But when it comes to online specifically, <clears throat> um, I think it comes up a lot when it comes to how people create their internet presence. So we're having a lot of conversations online about like how internet presences are extremely curated. And that may or may not be true all the time. Like, for example, um, <clears throat> my internet presence is pretty curated, I would say, in the sense that there's stuff that I wouldn't talk about on my public profile, but I still feel like that my public profile and persona are um, an accurate reflection of me. Like, I think that yeah. if you were to meet me having read my Twitter, you wouldn't be like surprised by what I'm like. Um. <laughs> um, no, so you were talking about like people wouldn't be surprised, uh, just reminded me of um, my boyfriend. Uh, I've been dating my boyfriend for, for several years at this point, And when I, um, uh, when I was running my my Twitter profile um, several years ago, right, for a long time, uh, he would actually refer to my Twitter presence as a separate entity from me. Um, <laughs> <laughs> he would actually like he would say that like Show Mark said, right? Show Mark is my username on Twitter, and he right. would refer to my presence online as a as a in a third person other person kind of capacity because it was just so completely different. <laughs> from uh, how he interacts with me. And I always thought that that was hysterical. And that happened for a, a while. Um. <laughs> and I feel like it is that way for like so many people. Like I have, I have a lot of friends who are like, I'm nothing like I am online. And then they get, and I notice that it can be a source of a lot of distress for some people um, where it can feel like, and this is kind of going back to the earlier question, but just this idea of like, okay, am I being fake? Am I projecting mm. a version of myself that doesn't exist? Um, 
Mm-hmm. And I do think that's kind of up to the person in question to evaluate. But like, um, I think the same way that like we code switch when we're talking to our professors versus how we talk to our family versus how we talk to our friends, like it's rarely the exact same presentation and the exact same style that we're using for different people. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's not like a bad thing. In a lot of cases, I would argue that it's actually a good thing. Like, I'm pretty sure my mom doesn't want me to talk to her the same way I talk to my friends. Um. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely not. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Um, And I think that extends to online presences too, to some extent where it's like, you're not, and I, I know that, like on the flip side of people pointing out that online presences can be curated and whatever. You also see a big push for people to be authentic and to let people have genuine insight into their lives and um, like accusations that people are fake when Mm -hmm. they don't like someone's online presence. And it's like, it's not fake just because it's different and just because it's not super revelatory. Like, (laughs) (laughs) that is just the kind of relationship that this person has chosen to have with their online following and like that is and we talk about parasocial relationships right like that is a relationship Mm -hmm. there is a relationship there and you should always be conscious of the parameters of your relationships you should always be when you're in a relationship with anybody you should be conscious and thinking about okay how do i want to interact with these people what do i want these people to know about me and what don't i want them to know about me absolutely absolutely um yeah no this this um one of the things that that I think a lot of people don't realize is that um, no matter how many languages you speak, you have already placed some kind of boundary or limiter or or descriptive like uh, like box right around mm-hmm. the way that you portray that relationship linguistically, right? You like like you said, you're not going to you're not going to talk to your mom the same way that you talk to your friends. In some cases for multilingual people, it's going to be a completely different language. Right. Yeah. Um, and, and but if you're monolingual, I assure you that the way that you talk to your mother is still different from the way that you talk to your friends, from the way <laughs> that you talk to your boss at your job or your professors in school. Right. Um, they're going to be different and it's going to be. Uh, all about like word choice right it's gonna be about word choice it's gonna be about politeness metrics um Mm -hmm. it's gonna be about you know dialect and the way that you pronounce certain things and you don't pronounce certain things um (laughs) whether or not you swear like (laughs) yep that's a big one yeah (laughs) Uh, when i have friends over and they swear in front of my mom and my mom is the kind of person who like (laughs) won't swear like herself like her friends do but she doesn't like it so it's just that much more awkward when it's my friends. Like, please stop. Like, oh, no, not here. <laughs> yeah, I feel the same way. Um, since since I've gotten older, uh, I think that um, my mother has kind of relaxed about, about my swearing. Um, finally. It only took 31 <laughs> years. It's fine. <laughs> God. But yeah, no, we are we are big here at, at RDR about analyzing parasocial relationships and the fact that the concept of a parasocial relationship is neutral, right? Mm-hmm. You they exist, everyone's got them. Um 
just because of the way that we interact with people and media and we have the internet. Um, but always, yeah, that this idea that you have said about being conscious of the parameters of your relationships is, I think, a very valuable idea. And one that leads into my next question, right, which is this this idea about audiences, right? Because the thing that we have been talking about is mostly artists and how artists and, and creators can manage uh, can manage those things. But what about audiences, right? And in particular, also audiences who might try to investigate, uh, who might be con- or who might be concerned about harmful portrayals in in the media that they are consuming. This isn't necessarily a bad thing, but I think that it's healthy to just admit it when you're a nosy person. Um, Absolutely. <laughs> like, Absolutely. I think that rather than trying to moralize your obsessive interest in someone's personal details of their life, like, instead of trying to moralize that and saying, like, I must uncover this information in order to evaluate whether or not this person has a right to create this specific type of art, I think it would be easier <laughs> to just be like, okay, I'm kind of nosy. Just make yeah. peace with that. Peace with it. Look, there's a reason that I'm a journalist, y'all. <laughs> okay, like I admitted it to myself. Come on. <laughs> and it, I love that. I think that I think Hayden could do to admit that. Yeah. Yeah, probably. <laughs> um, but yeah, and like, if you're going to go digging around someone's public profiles, trying to figure out like who they are and if they've ever hinted that they're X or Y, like that's not like a fantastic thing to do. But I do think that it's inevitable and that people are going to do that <laughs> regardless mm-hmm. of whether I say that that's not good to do or not. And I feel like most people who do that stuff know that that's not a great thing to do. So, you know, whatever. But like... If you are going to go digging into someone's personal life and if you uncover something that you think that person has taken great pains to not have be public information, just don't post mm-hmm. about it. Just keep it to don't yourself. It. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe feel yeah, a little bit bad about it, <laughs> but you don't need to post it. <laughs> yeah. You don't need to tell everyone and their dog. And actually, um, I am going to bring up something from from Radio Drama Revival here. So we we do have a researcher at Radio Drama Revival um, for for our interviewees because she goes through and and researches interviewees to find interviews, the previous interviews that they've done. Right. And and reviews that they've gotten on work that they've done and their their backgrounds in like what led them to doing the thing that I am interviewing them about. Mm -hmm. And our researcher has like very like we all have in the team, but especially our researcher has a very strict understanding of like boundaries and like, okay, well, I found this fact and I'm not going to put it in here um, because it's not necessary for this interview. Mm-hmm. Um, this is not something that, that needs to be brought up. It is completely irrelevant and like clearly like a private fact. Right. And so having that understanding, especially when like doing this kind of research is part of the job, like it is in journalism and mm-hmm. interviewing um, is really, really crucial. Um, yeah. 100%. Yeah. It's like, just, just be mindful of other people. (laughs) Yeah. I Um, cannot explain to you why you should be kind to other people. Yep. (laughs) 
And also just on the question of whether or not certain people have the right to make certain types of art. Like that is just like that identity politics stuff that has taken over the art sphere is just so exhausting. Like, especially when it comes to something like mental illness, which like that can develop at any point in your life. Mm -hmm. (laughs) A lot of mental illnesses can develop at varying points in your life and stuff. And it's like, it's often something that isn't visible, often not always. And so Mm -hmm. it's just kind of like, it's not the same as when you evaluate something like race, which can be more visible, although I taught like an entire year of gender studies without ever disclosing that I'm Palestinian to my students. And they probably all thought I was Italian. But... (laughs) (laughs) Sorry, that's very good. Um... (laughs) No, yeah. Like, I don't know. Like, you you just, you can't make assumptions about things like this. Like, you don't know and you don't have to either. Nope. Yeah, like the... This this is something that we've talked about a lot um, in regards to queerness um, here, uh, right? Because because a lot of a lot of queer people discover or find out or figure out that they're queer in some fashion because of art that they are creating. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so they exactly. start out making this art not being queer and then end it with being queer. And so if we refuse, like if we tell them that they don't have the right to make that art, they would they would have a much harder time and possibly never figure it out. I'd been writing about autistic characters for maybe four years before I finally read a story about an autistic character that made me go, oh, am I autistic? So... (laughs) (laughs) I'm sorry, that's very good. It Uh, happens. It happens. It happens, y'all. This is perfectly normal. Um... Yeah, uh, that's very that's very funny. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, that's good. Um, so let's actually since since we're talking about this um, this concept of like you know who has the right to X right, um, I want to talk about communities for a moment. Um, mm-hmm. I want to shift into talking about online communities where where online communities have you know they might have they have like leaders or mentors or advisors right whether these people have sought that position or not, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So I think first, what can identify someone in a a small, mostly online community as one of these things that they themselves might not be aware of? Um, I'm going to keep the focus on audio drama because it is a bit of a broad question. Yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, But I think that something that we see in audio drama and creative spaces, which is really fantastic and a lot of my friends are people who are engaged in this but like creating resources for new people an awesome thing to do um or people who aren't new just creating resources in general for how to do this and tutorials and things like that which is great um i myself have an interest in creating certain resources But the thing about that is that when your resources really start to gain traction with the audience that you want them to gain traction with, particularly if the audience is people who are new, um, sometimes you can start to be treated as like a sort of authority on the subject, especially if you're someone who's created a lot of resources and is invited to participate in creating more. Like if you're invited to speak at a conference or something, or if you're invited to moderate an event, 
mm-hmm. based on your expertise on a particular subject. So like, let's say that I create a resource on writing about disabled characters. Um, and then people start asking me like questions about it or um, asking me to speak at events or if people start linking the resource that I created a lot. Um, in a way, whether that was my intention or not, at this point, I've become a sort of authority on this subject. Um, and when you're in that position, um, it does give you a certain measure of power. Absolutely. Yeah. And just so that you know, everyone knows that I'm not exactly like having blinders on here. Yeah, I am. Uh, I am 100% like a member of this like fiction podcast welcome wagon, right? Um, <laughs> yep. The audio drama <laughs> right, welcome because wagon. I, yeah. Because <laughs> that's that's what that's what I position myself as. I, I I intentionally position myself as someone that you can point to and link to a lot of resources, and hopefully through the resources that people will find that I have made, will find other ones that I have not made. Um, ideally, um, I've also <laughs> noticed a lot of people offering to kind of do that work for others, where it's like, um, <laughs> if new people come into a space, it's. Uh, sometimes people will offer will volunteer to provide their expertise to those new people. So I'll see calls sometimes that are like, if you are a person of color creator, I'm willing to offer you a free consultation on X and Y. That kind of does the same thing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. So why um, why might people in in these positions, right? And and if you want to talk about this specific situation that we have detailed, that's fine as well. But why might they not think of themselves as like a person with that kind of authority? What might be preventing that realization? I think the word authority is a little bit loaded, and people shy away from it. <laughs> yeah. Um, no one wants to be well. Okay, not no one. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of people don't want to be treated as an expert on something, especially if they don't necessarily actually feel like they're an expert on it, um, especially if you're just sort of talking from your own experience. But that's also where it gets dangerous. Like if you're basing your advice on your own experience, um, then there's always going to be other perspectives that you're leaving out. And the same advice that's helpful for one person can be harmful to someone else and vice versa. Um, so while you may not want to be seen as an expert on this or not feel like you're an expert on it or you aren't actually seeing the scope of your influence, like you don't see all the different people who share that resource that you created, for example, um, (laughs) that doesn't mean that it isn't gaining traction. (laughs) It doesn't mean that it isn't influencing people. I think one smaller example of this, and this isn't even like, you don't even have to be on the audio drama welcome wagon for this, but um, (laughs) your Twitter account, right? Um, A lot of people don't really understand this, but it's like when you have your public Twitter account, And there's all kinds of people following you, even if you don't have that many followers, like maybe you only have 200. But if you don't know who every single one of those people are, chances are that a couple of them might be minors or other people who are easily impressionable. And the and the behavior that you model on your Twitter account can influence the behavior of others and what they see as acceptable. So one thing that really frustrates me in audio drama, for example, is um, people who have huge platforms with thousands of followers will post about um, 
never getting any sleep at night because they're working in a way mm-hmm. that kind of pokes fun at it, but is also kind of celebratory. And it's like, okay, but you have teenagers following you. <laughs> yes. Uh, I myself am guilty of this, and I usually end up uh, posting a follow-up tweet being like, do not do that. <laughs> <laughs> it Please do not imitate me. Bad. <laughs> <laughs> but people don't under... And it's the same with trauma posting, too. Like, when, when someone is posting about their own trauma and you have teenagers following you, then they're like, whether you've thought it through or not, whether you've decided that this is safe for you or not, there's someone out there who might not think about it as carefully and who sees you doing it and might feel like they can do it or even feel pressured to do it. And it's like, you need to think about how your behavior online influences the behavior of other people even if you think you have a really small presence even if you're like oh my hundred followers like it's not going to matter but you don't if you don't know who your hundred followers are it could matter and it's not just right it's not even just teenagers right it's you know almost anyone right who Mm -hmm. who views this as a, a positive parasocial relationship who will take cues from from you Especially Um, when we're, especially when it is a community, right? Like, mm -hmm. you're not just influencing fans. You're also potentially influencing other creators. Like, how does it feel as a creator when 90% of your timeline is people talking about how they never get any sleep because they're working? (laughs) And you're just like, gosh, maybe I should be working at 1 a.m. Don't do that. Yep. Don't do that. <laughs> Go to bed. <laughs> uh, I think this is also related to another, um, this other issue of um, the the lack of realization of, of the privilege that you that you have, right? Because mm-hmm. um, you know your your experiences in in the space that you are considered an authority or an expert or whatever in right are always going to be influenced by your personal experiences. And if you are a white person um, who is disabled, uh, then you're going to have a very different experience about disability than a person of color who is disabled. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and you still benefit from whiteness. Yeah, and I feel like a lot of people try to combat this by consulting with people that they know, but it's like, (laughs) I'm okay, like, I study gender studies, I am a feminist, I do believe that experiences are a legitimate and important source of knowledge, Mm -hmm. but at the same time, experiences are inherently variable, and we have to sort of co-construct truths by sharing our different experiences and you can't just rely on one person's experience to represent an entire community of people like even if you are white and you're experiencing your and you're sharing your 100 white experience and you're not claiming to talk for anyone else you probably there are other white people whose experiences are going yeah. to be different than yours yeah <laughs> <laughs> It's this whole, the whole question of the monolith, right? Mm-hmm. Um, the fact that, you know, we're not one. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. your friend who happens to be a person of color and disabled also isn't one. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, what a shocker, actually. Uh, what? <laughs> <laughs> 
that wasn't in my manual. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's always nice to see, like, I consulted with so-and-so who does represent X and Y, and this is what they had to say, because it's like, okay, good job for taking that step. But it's also like, okay, but maybe you shouldn't orient all your advice around this person without making a single disclaimer. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's, it's, um, <laughs> the thing that this, that this brings up for me, right, is this, um, this idea of, of nuance, right? And, you know, yes, I know, nuance on my internet, <laughs> not, in, not in this economy or whatever. Um. <laughs> we gotta have hope. Yeah, yeah exactly. <laughs> Fingers crossed, right? Um, but it's this concept of like, yeah, multiple things can be true at the same time. So, you know, like you said, experiences are a valid, useful way of understanding community orientations and and social interactions and things like this right mm-hmm. um but they can't be the only way because you need to pair that with other other things in order to avoid this monolith problem mm-hmm. because you're not going to be able to talk to every single human being who is part of even like the community of people who are listening to your show right Um, yeah and like it only becomes harmful when like there is that erasure happening um and when you see that certain perspectives are like almost never represented or when something is um put out as like a blanket this is good for everybody all the time um or worse, when people say that doing it a different way is a red flag. Yeah. <laughs> and I actually, like, I, I did have an experience where um, uh, s- someone had introduced a sort of regulation in a space that I was in um, that was meant to protect certain people. And I had voice saying that that regulation made me uncomfortable even though I was part of that same demographic of people it was supposed to be protecting um, for reasons X and Y. Um, And I had the person in charge of that space uh, kind of come in and tell me that like, okay, cool, I respect your opinion, but also no, we're not changing how we do things to make exceptions for people. Um, So situations like that, like it's just, it's painful um, and it's (laughs) harmful. And that is not how you run a space that's supposed to benefit marginalized people. (laughs) Yeah, no, definitely not. I think that one of the other things that people have a hard concept of grasping is are these like competing access needs, right? Um, There is just no way that you'll be able to run any kind of space that will provide accessibility for every single type of person who needs some kind of accessibility option. Because yeah. by its nature, a, a lot of the accessibility options are going to contradict each other. Exactly. You need to be you need to be flexible. Um, I think that's kind of the main thing. Like it's like you're not going to be able to accommodate for literally everyone all the time, but you need to be willing when someone makes their needs clear to you. You need to be willing to hear them out and to accommodate them if that's a uh, if that's a goal that you claim to have. Yeah, you need to make an attempt. You need to just not, like, shut them down immediately. Mm-hmm. You need to talk with them about it and discuss options. Um, yeah. And be open to being wrong about stuff. 
Oh, that's another sign. If you're running any kind of community space, you have authority in that space. I'm sorry. I know you don't want to, but you do. Yeah. <laughs> Alas, you, you, you got it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Let's let's go and let's come and talk about this other another type of responsibility. Um, many people <laughs> in many, 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 many different communities and in circles and stuff say that artists or celebrities of various kinds who are some world of artists usually um, and, and other creators should not get involved in quote unquote politics um, by stating support for justice and equity matters, right? Like anti-racism or Palestine. Um, yeah. Uh, what are your thoughts on the role of, of artists in particular here, right? Podcast creators, um, in taking a stance on domestic and international justice matters. I think something that we need to kind of, and this is coming from again, a feminist perspective, but I think something that we need to understand is that all art is political, whether you want it to be or not, even if you think that you are making the most milk toast possible thing you could come up with um it is political because it is milk toast um <laughs> i need that on a shirt <laughs> <laughs> and so there is no staying out of politics whether you make your stance public or not not making a stance is also a stance. Um, and it is a stance that oftentimes you have to have some kind of privilege to make because like, I'll use myself an example. Today, I said on Twitter that I'm going to be taking a break from it because the last couple of weeks have been a lot. And yesterday, Israel broke its ceasefire with Gaza. Um, and I was just like, I don't have the energy to respond to this properly. Um, I'm going to take a break. And that is something that like, I think is really healthy. And I think that's a good decision I'm making for myself. But it's also something that I'm in a, a I have the privilege to be able to do because people who are in Palestine do not have the option to take a break. Right. Mm -hmm. um, and mm -hmm. so whether I'm posting on Twitter about it or not, it is happening. And the people in Palestine on the ground who are dealing with it are going to be posting on Twitter because they have to. That is how they spread awareness of what is going on. Um, and so I, I think that we need to, like the, like the only reason I can do this is because I'm sitting in the comfort of my home in Canada. Um, so I think that's something that we need to understand that like, even if you're not taking a stance, that doesn't mean that you're staying out of politics, right? I think solidarity is just so important to any struggle. Um, and I think that we need to understand how our struggles are connected. Um, and so even if you feel like something is none of your business or it's not your problem, it actually probably is your problem in some way that you just haven't done the research to understand. Um, like, for example, maybe you don't think you need to post about Palestine. You don't know anyone Palestinian. Um, but if you're living in America, for example, then your tax dollars are funding the Israeli military. So actually yep. it is your problem, <laughs> yeah, whether you say something is. about it or not. And just highlighting your own connection to these things, while it may seem self-centered, is actually how you build solidarity 
You should understand what your connection to different issues are and where you're positioned relative to them. And if you're a marginalized person, you should be thinking about how your struggle connects to the struggles of others. Like, um, so <laughs> while I get not being plugged in all the time, like I just said, I'm taking a break. Um, you need to take care of yourself. But at the same time, you do have like, if you care about making any form of difference for the sake of justice, then you should care to be in the loop sometimes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. <laughs> I think that there always needs to be a balance, right? Um, for you to understand how much, how much you can put into something, but knowing that you have to put in something. Mm -hmm. um, and knowing what type of something that is. If you'd like to support the stories and art of Serena Rahal, you can donate to Signed Venus at coffee.com slash Signed Venus. That's coffee, K-O dash F-I. If you liked what you heard of this interview, there's another 20 minutes of it. We talk about things like the distinction between responsibility and obligation and a truly great example of allyship within the fiction podcast community. You can access the extended cut and extended cuts of all our interviews on Patreon at patreon.com slash radiodramarevival. And now we bring you our moment of Anne. Uh, just, just one second, folks. Anne? Oh, oh no. It looks like no moment of Anne today, folks. Anne is sick and can't really talk, so they would just like you to know that they love you. That means it's time for the credits. This episode was recorded in the unceded territory of the Kalapuya people, the Klitskani Indian tribe, the Kaulitz Indian tribe, and the Adfaladi tribe. Colonizers named this place Beaverton, Oregon. If you are looking for ways to support or donate to Native communities, the Kamloops Aboriginal Friendship Society is seeking donations to build a new center. KAFS offers many services and programs for urban located Indigenous people, such as healthcare initiatives, outreach programs for children and adults, childcare, food hamper and nutrition programs. You can support them at charity.gofundme.com slash o slash en slash campaign slash new friendship center, center spelled C-E-N-T-R-E, which is linked in the episode description. Our theme music is Reunion of the Space Ducks by the band Kylo Kaz. You can find their music on Free Music Archive. Our audio producer is Will Williams. Our marketing manager and line producer is Ann Baird. Our researcher is Heather Cohen. Our submissions editor is Rashika Rao. Our associate marketing manager is Jillian Schrager. Our transcriptionist is Katie Yeomans. Our audio consultant is Eli Hamada McElveen. Our associate producer is Sean Howard. Our executive producers are Fred Greenhouse and David Reinstrom. Our mascot is Ticker Tape, the goat. I'm your host, Elena Fernandez Collins. This has been Radio Drama Revival. All storytellers, welcome. <laughs>